Hello, my dear listeners. How are you? Welcome to episode 12, the season finale of the show, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. For so long, journalism in America has been defined and run by white men and some white women. But where do the rest of us fit in and what happens to our stories? No one is poised to better answer this question than our guest today, who is the founding mother of the 19th, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom reporting at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. I am talking about the one and only Erin Haynes. Haynes is also the editor at large of the 19th and an award winning journalist with almost two decades of experience. She was previously the national writer on race for the Associated Press, and she's also worked at the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post. Haynes's political coverage was the topic of her fall 2019 Ferris Professorship at Princeton University, where she taught a class on the crucial role of black women in the 2020 election. Haynes is also an MSNBC commentator, so you frequently see her on your TV screens, and she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Erin. So my first question is, tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Did you know early on that journalism would be the professional path for you? Where did the black girl magic for Eric Haynes begin? <laughs> oh, wow. Anisha, that's so, that's so sweet of you. Uh, so listen, I uh, actually grew up right outside of Atlanta, about 20 miles south uh, in a town called Fairburn, which was a great place to grow up. My mom was the first black person to buy a house on our street. And it was a lovely neighborhood, lovely neighbors. and you know, I grew up playing, you know, in my town, in the park down the street from my house. That town was really just my whole world. And I learned a lot, I think, about a lot of things. Race being among them. Our town back then was about half and half, I think. And, you know, so I grew up, you know, with folks who look like me, but also other people uh, who didn't look like me. And as our town got more diverse, you know, learning how to interact with all kinds of people. And uh, the reason that we lived uh, where we lived was because it was near the airport. My mom was a flight attendant for Delta Airlines for uh, about 30 plus years. And so she also just, you know, in her job, knew the importance of treating everybody with respect and, and treating everybody equally. And that was a thing that I think that she passed along to us that, that served me well as a human being, but I also think serves me well as a journalist. I will not lie to you. I did not, I wasn't one of those reporters that kind of grew up with ink in my veins or anything like that. But, but I do think that I, I was a child that probably had some of the inherent qualities that, that make somebody, you know, a good reporter. I was nosy as hell, first of all, <laughs> uh, which never hurt. <laughs> my fourth grade teacher said that to, a par- uh, to my parents during a parent. That you were nosy? That he said that I am so curious and I have to know about everything. But he said it in a really bad way. And I think about it all the time. It was a euphemism. He was trying to call you nosy, but he was. Yeah. What a jerk. And you know what? It's so important, right? You have to be curious. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> curious is a plus, people. Uh, somebody tells you your child is curious. That's a good thing. Also, yes, I was speaking of teachers and, and, and complaints. I was the one that talked too much in class and, you know, did not always pay attention to what was happening in the front of the room, but was always interested in kind of what else was going on in the room. And again, I think that that has, it worked out. <laughs> I, think, I think we can say. So, yeah. That's fantastic. I love it. I actually got the Chatterbox Award in third grade and I was so proud, but, you know, nobody else was impressed, but I was. 
So you were just awarded the 2020 Vernon Jarrett Medal for Journalistic Excellence, a prize that honors journalists who have reported stories that are of significant importance or had a significant impact on some aspect of Black life in America. You were recognized for your Pulitzer Center-supported project, Portraits of a Pandemic, which documents the lives of women of color during the coronavirus pandemic. It was such a beautiful project and so important. Tell me how this came about. Sure. I mean, so look, I went into 2020, like most of us, focused on this election. Political journalists tend to look at elections like the Super Bowl, right? Like it's our World Series, it's our Olympics all rolled into one. And so, you know, we were really excited to cover this campaign. And I had been on the campaign trail for the first few months of the year. Uh, You know, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. And then, you know, the pandemic hit and everything kind of ground to a halt, uh, including my travel, including the campaign for all intents and purposes. And so, you know, I was back in Philadelphia where I am based and, you know, was in my apartment thinking, you know, kind of what are we going to do? We're a brand new newsroom, had only been out in the world for a few months and we, you know, we're supposed to be focused on politics. But, you know, honestly, you know, within a few days, it really occurred to me this pandemic was an opportunity for us to do some very important storytelling around women as the people who we anticipated were going to be disproportionately impacted by and responding to coronavirus. And that is exactly what happened. And so, you know, I I took the idea to my editors and said, you know, it, it felt like such an overwhelming topic. And so the way that I thought that maybe we could wrap our heads around it and maybe get a handle on it and and give people a sense of what this moment was going to mean for this country uh, and for our industry was was to talk about the pandemic, tackling one issue at a time through one woman at a time in Philadelphia, which is the poorest big city in America. So like a lot of the issues that have been laid bare by uh, the pandemic, a lot of the inequality was already present here in a big way before coronavirus hit. And so talking about how this city in particular and how women in this city in particular were grappling with those inequalities, just it just felt very important and, and really kind of gave my career meaning at a time when I didn't really know what, what I was supposed to do without a campaign to cover this year. Uh, but this absolutely was a story that felt as consequential and as momentous as anything else I could have been doing this year. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, but and you really were on it from the get-go. I mean, it took a couple of weeks or... Yeah, yeah. By Easter, we were out with our first story about a pastor who basically had to go virtual with her congregation even before, you know, the government said that there needed to be a lockdown because she was pastoring mostly older, mostly Black folks, right? Folks who were in those vulnerable populations of people. And she didn't, she certainly didn't want to put them at risk and, and, and wanted... It was a different way of ministering to them. And so, you know, the Easter season, she was really finding herself tested as as a pastor. And that story uh, was just, it was the perfect kickoff to, to the pandemic because there was a message in the conversation that she and I had that really felt very timely for people uh, in, in, in a very chaotic and uncertain time. Wow. Um, amen to that. So you wrote in a CGR article uh, that, quote, in November 2017, I was named AP's National Writer for Race and Ethnicity. The job represented the highest calling for me as a Black journalist, which I unapologetic consider myself to be. What do you mean when you say that? Expand on that a little bit for me. 
Well, you know, I got my start in journalism working for a Black newspaper in Atlanta, the Atlanta Daily World, which was right downtown on Auburn Avenue at the time, historic street in my hometown. And that experience was really formative for me as a journalist because every week, you know, me and and a few other reporters in our newsroom were charged with going out and finding stories about our community The people who led our community were mostly Black. I mean, Atlanta is that kind of city. The mayor's been Black for my whole life. Uh, But also people like the district attorney, the police chief, uh, the city council, all all of these, you know, people in power in, in politics in Atlanta were Black folks. And so I was covering them and writing stories that would go, you know, on the front page of that newspaper. And what that experience taught me was that our stories mattered right? And that I didn't need to justify why I wanted to tell stories about Black people. And, you know, even as I, you know, moved on to to mainstream and legacy journalism institutions, like I took that with me, that I wanted to be able to bear witness and I wanted to be able to go places, you know, where the majority of people who look like me, uh, you know, either didn't have time to go or or, uh, didn't necessarily feel welcome to tell those stories. And, And that was really really important to me. And so, you know, bringing my lived experience as a Black person in America to my work was something that I always felt like was uh, and treated like uh, an asset and not a liability. And that was really why, you know, writing about race in America for the Associated Press, the oldest and largest news gathering organization in the world, felt like my dream job. It wasn't my dream job, as a matter of fact, when my now boss, Emily Ramshaw, our CEO, approached me and and wanted me to come uh, with her and and embark on this journey to start the 19th. And what I have come to realize in this year of my journalism is that this is my new dream job because I get to bring my full lived experience in terms of my race and my gender to my work to empower our readership. And really, I think being able to be thoughtful, not just about my race, which I think I had focused on honestly, for the majority of my career, but also the majority of my life, thinking about what it meant to be a Black person in this country. But it really wasn't until I came to the 19th that I really was able to be very thoughtful about what it means to be a woman. And honestly, even still, like I can't divorce my womanhood from my race. So I think about my womanhood in terms of being a Black woman in this country as well. Yes, you know, and it's like that for for women of color. I, exactly. That's, I, I, really didn't, I really didn't get that, though, before I came here. Like, I really, and, and, and that's when it really became clear to me, right? Like, that, that yeah, this is why white women are, 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 you know, so so heavily associated with feminism, right? Because they don't yeah. think about being white as much. They think about the other thing that holds them back or that they see as holding them back, right? Which is their gender. Which is their gender. But for us, it's both. Ab- absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I have this conversation with some of my closest white friends all the time. I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of getting better this year, but it's like you can't choose. We're, it's both for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we don't, we can't, we cannot separate these two. Yes, exactly. We cannot separate. And I love that you, I mean, how did you have that kind of confidence? to know that this is an asset for you and not a burden because it took me so long to be like, hey, no, I have a story. It's important. And if it's not important to my white editor, let me tell you that I know it's important to other women that look like me. Did somebody teach you that or were you just like, no, I am here. I'm Aaron Haynes. (laughs) You know, I think honestly, taking the emotion out of it so that people would not be defensive about it was a big part of it, right? Because I think 
white gatekeepers sometimes, they need proof about why race is relevant or real. And, and so facts over feelings is usually my approach to just reinforcing what it is that I not only believe, but, but what I know to be true about the value of, of this reporting. You know, for most of my career, you know, every year at the end of the year, you know, journalism likes to, you know, kind of do this roundup of like the top stories of the year, right? The top 10 or the top 20 or whatever, whatever we decide, whatever number we decide to do. And, you know, invariably, uh, the majority of those stories have some race angle, like the intersection of race and something, whether it's sports or education or business, like there's some memorable story uh, that stands out that has to do with race because race really is the unfinished business of our democracy. And, and I, I believe that it is the story of our time. And so that is something that I feel like bears out every year, just in terms of the stories that pop up. It's not just me saying it, like it is our society dictating it because of who and where we are as a country still, right? So, yeah. Yes. And I mean, I'm going to get to this later, but that is also why I feel like the creation and the existence of the 19th is so important. Yeah. The other thing that I have an issue explaining, you're right to take the emotion out of it. As you can see, I cannot take the emotion out of it. But, you know, I mean, it's the same is true. uh, Well, even more true. You know, you you mentioned the 19th. I mean, the reason for our existence is that, that, you know, we know that women are the majority of the American electorate. And yet, you know, too much of the coverage around political journalism treats women like some kind of special interest group. Yes. And, and that's just not the reality. Like, we are the majority of the population with the majority of the U.S. workforce. Why are we not talking to women about issues, whether that's the economy or healthcare or education or the Supreme Court or rural issues or whatever? You know, like, like women are voters, but, but like we don't get to be presented as containing multitudes, right? We, we, we only have, we, we only care about things that, that pertain to, you know, our sex when that, that, that's just not, that's just not real. And so I'm, I'm, I love the lens that, that we take for politics because we assert that all issues are our are, are issues and that, that we are not a special interest group, but that we do represent the majority of this country. I love the lens we bring to it and it makes everything so much richer and the story so much better. Why people don't get it. One other question I want to quickly ask you is I particularly have an issue when people want kind of studies or statistics. Like, can you intellectualize racism? You can't, right? It's lived. It is lived. I think the certainly the data and the research back up what we know to be true uh, because of our lived experience. If we choose to, you know, actually bring that lived experience to the work, you know, and, and this is, this really kind of gets into a whole nother podcast episode that we could do around, you know, just the notion of objectivity, right. And what that means. Yes. Oh my goodness. I had Wes Lowry on about this and I'm going to have you back to talk about it. Sure. Yeah. And we, and we talk about, we start, we certainly talk about this, uh, you know, he and I, cause we, we certainly are old friends who go back a long way too, but yeah, I mean, it, it's true. And, and he and I were on the ground together in Ferguson, Right. Interviewing uh, those folks who talk just so casually about the oppression that they were under from their local government and and local law enforcement. Right. The warrants that they had that made it really impossible for them to even move about on a daily basis. And, And so to do that reporting and then months later to have a Department of Justice report really quantifying all of that, right? Like, so that was the proof that people needed to say, oh, wow, maybe the police aren't all good. Maybe they don't treat everybody the same. Well, that was what we heard from them, from their lived experience. It was true. It wasn't just how they felt. It was true. Yes, exactly. You know, so, so you need, I, th- I think you, I think 
that having both only bolsters the case, but the absence of that data does not make those people's lived experiences less true. Yes. Oh, amen. So in the fall of 2019, you brought your political coverage expertise to Princeton. I did, yeah. Where you taught a class on Black women in the 2020 election. Um, You served two terms on the board of directors for the National Association of Black Journalists Organizations, VP of Print. What do you want to tell young Black girls, young women of color, about persisting and banking on yourself because it is hard. It is so hard. It is hard to invest in yourself when no one else will. What is your advice? You know, my advice is is that you can do it and that who you are, again, is an asset to whatever it is that you want to do. Like it, it will make that profession that much stronger if you bring your authentic self to that work. Uh, I certainly find that to be true in journalism. And I know also just that representation really does matter. When I was growing up in Atlanta, uh, you know, my brother and I were not allowed to watch television during dinner time unless we were watching the local news. And so I got to watch my favorite anchor, a Black woman, on the news every night. Now, that didn't make me think that I necessarily wanted to be on TV, but it did make me think that maybe I could do journalism one day. And I know that it was, be- it was because I saw her doing that job that I thought, well, may- you know, that's a job that I could maybe do. Was it Gwen Eiffel? Of, uh- it was not Gwen Eiffel. Her name was Monica Kaufman at the time. She's now Monica Kaufman Pearson and somebody who actually cheers me on, which is just like a total full circle moment, which is crazy to me. But no, I mean, she was a trailblazer in Atlanta. And the other thing I would say is, you know, seek out the Black women that you admire, because I cannot tell you how fortunate I have been in my life, you know, when I have done that, that they have reached back and that they have been willing to help me get to where it is that that I wanted to go. Because I think that all of us, you know, want to be the person that we wish that we had uh, when we were young, you know, and, and so I certainly, or we want to pay it forward because somebody was that person for us. Yes. Uh, and so I just, you know, I encourage if if you are if you are a black woman who is wanting to pay it forward or or, or fill a void that that you didn't have, do that for a young black woman in your life. And if you are a young black woman who is looking for that kind of guidance, uh, there's there's probably a black woman, uh, whether you know her yet or or would like to know her, uh, that is willing to do that for you. So that would be my advice for sure. Yeah, that is excellent advice. So you are a founding mother of the 19th, yes. a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom reporting at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. It is actually my dream, but I'm going to ask you, do you think that this was always your destiny to have a newsroom on your own terms? Oh, man. I mean, you're so lucky. I love the 19th. Trust me, every, every single day, I, I feel so uh, blessed and grateful to be a part of this newsroom and to be doing something at this point in my career for the first time and to be doing something that nobody else has ever done. Like that feels, it, that feels like my best and highest use uh, as a journalist and as a black woman. But I will tell you, you know, I, I, I could not have envisioned that this would be where I ended up, but I think about, you know, my 22, 23 year old self embarking Uh, on my career. And I think that this is exactly the kind of career that she would have wished for at that age. 
And so I just, I, it, it is, it is mind blowing to think about. Absolutely. I could not have dreamed up this newsroom, but I'm so glad uh, that my bosses had the vision uh, to do it. And as soon as it was presented to me, I don't, I, I think I was, the, the train had left the station at that, at that point. Like, like I knew that this was probably happening because it didn't even feel like a risk, honestly, for me to do this. The, the risk to me was in not trying this. Yeah. Oh gosh, I, it's, it is so amazing. I, you are so lucky. And I, we are all so grateful to you, you know, for you guys, for your team at the 19th and for you, for even having something like this. I mean, gosh, it is, it is truly uh, amazing. So we are friends on Twitter. We are. And we follow each other and crack Peppa pig jokes. Hey. So tell me why Peppa? Why not Caillou or Baby Shark? <laughs> no. Peppa, I feel like, is one of the better better children's cartoons out there. <laughs> you know, that's how they get you. That's how they get you. Like, it, look, it looks very wholesome. It looks, you know, there's a family and, you know, they're cute and they have British accents. They have British accents. You know, it, it, it is. It, it's very subversive, uh, Peppa Pig. I honestly started watching it like you cover politics politics is a very um stressful thing to cover and especially in an election year right and so you need your uh, escape hatches and peppa has been an escape hatch for me like a way for me to kind of just check out and and not watch cable news on a 24-hour loop which is what i would do if left to my own devices um and so i take a detour if i'm flipping through the channels and i see that peppa's on i'm there and it's crazy because Peppa comes on at like all kinds of crazy hours. It's like, who, you know, your three-year-old is not watching Peppa at 10 p.m., right? But Peppa's on. So I turn to it and I watch it. And I watch it, like I said, as an escape. But like inevitably, inevitably, within the first episode or two, like I find myself enraged because the quote-unquote unquote, lessons, and I use that term very loosely here, they just, I'm just like, what, what, is, what is this supposed to be teaching anyone? <laughs> <laughs> the plots are just a mess. And, and so, yeah, so I started tweeting about, <laughs> about these episodes. And yes, that is how some people find me. Maybe they saw me on MSNBC, but maybe they heard me kind of trashing Peppa's latest shenanigans and uh, becoming angry at um, this porcelain toddler who is not a real character, but nonetheless evokes from me some very... Uh, visceral reactions <laughs> on a weekly basis. I just love it. <laughs> but I feel like if you got into some other cartoons like Caillou, you would realize that Peppa is actually good. I mean, what is up with Caillou? I feel as strongly about Caillou as I think you do. I think you need to start tweeting about this. I think you need, I think you need to start calling out Caillou, the truth about Caillou. <laughs> you know what? That is actually not a bad idea. Listen, I'd read it. <laughs> the truth about Caillou. I can actually see it now. So I love this quote from you. I think that's probably the question I keep coming back to. Who isn't being seen? And how can I make sure that they are seen and that we don't leave them out of this? I love that. You know, I feel that's a quote that's going to, I'm going to put on top of my, my work to guide me. What pushes you to do the work that you do? I mean, I just, I think the Black women in whose tradition I really tried to model my work ethic after. And that is, you know, Black women that I admire across a range of, of professions and contributions to our society, to our democracy. You know, whether we're talking about Ida B. Wells, uh, pioneering Black journalist, 
or we're talking about um, the black suffragists who, you know, fought shoulder to shoulder with white women, but, but had to work twice as hard after they were denied their access to the franchise with the passage of the 19th Amendment. The asterisk in our logo is an, is an homage to them and their work uh, and their sacrifice and, and the attempted erasure of their contribution to this democracy. I think about Shirley Chisholm, who uh, is one of a, a political icon and one of my heroes, honestly, um, because of her bold and courageous leadership. I, I think about those types of women every day. And, and so many of the women that I write about and cover their determination and their commitment to, you know, on behalf of, of, of not just Black folks, but really you know, their communities, their country, and this democracy. Like, it is, it is what keeps me going because if I am not telling those stories, I'm not saying that nobody else will, but, but maybe they won't. You know, and I know that if I'm here, that they will definitely be told. Uh, and so that is, that is what motivates me and what keeps me going. I love that, Erin. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been amazing. I will speak to you soon. When my best friend, Bilal Qureshi, came up with the idea for this podcast, we both knew we wanted to amplify the voices of women of color because we are so often overlooked and dismissed when we are so awesome and inspiring. Yes, I am biased, but when I hear about women like Erin Haynes creating newsrooms like the 19th, I know our melanin is truly magical. I have a lot of feelings signing off today, you guys. I won't lie. This feeling chime means so much to me. We launched it mid-pandemic and the response has been so great. I hate season finales because I could just go on and on with this podcast. But as most of you know, I just inked a book deal with Simon & Schuster's Tiller Press, a dream I have had my whole life. I am going to get nice and cozy in my writing cave, but Spilling Chai will be back with season three in February, so this is just a tiny break. Please stay up to date with us in the meantime on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Spilling Chai Podcast. We are also on YouTube, so make sure to check us out there. And you can find all things Spilling Chai related on our website, SpillingChai.com. Thank you guys so much for being the absolute best audience. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai. Chai.